This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy sixth birthday. Happy sixth birthday. Is it birthday? Is it an anniversary? Was the birthday for the show and the anniversary for us? Yes, it's exactly that. It's the podcast's birthday and our anniversary as a podcasting duo. What is six? Iron. Hmm. I was very scared you were going to invite me to do an Iron Man challenge. I was scared you were going to invite me to do an Iron Man challenge. Or ask me to do your ironing for you. Well, maybe that would be better for both of us. Now, I've got a question for you. Yes. I was ruminating on the fact that we were going to be doing this. If you were writing a letter to your 2017 self, what is the most surprising thing you would tell your 2017 self about yourself in 2023? Oh, this is a good question. It is. It's a sort of Jeff Lloyd kind of question. Yes. Shall I tell you what mine is? Yes, do. Because then it'll give you time to think. Um, mine is that I'm a bike rider, a proficient bike rider. Well, a bike rider anyway. Yes. I bike ride to work in London. I ride around. I'm a converted bike rider, and I wouldn't have expected to be that in 2017. No, even when we did our episode on bike riding, we were very interested in what our guests had to say, but we were resolute that neither of us was going to get onto a bicycle in London. You are also a bike rider, mate, actually. I am. I mean, at the moment, I'm uh, temporarily grounded. No, no, because of your... Because um, of my bike accident. Yes, indeed, indeed. That's a fair point. Anyway, I think that may be the cold water swimming, but I think the bike riding is probably the more surprise uh, And the cooking, but not really. I was a bad cook then, too. <laughs> well, I think, I think I would write in the letter to my 2017 self. Yeah. You're most surprised that you're still doing the podcast with me. Uh, yes, it's that. <laughs> and it's. Um, I, th- I think I would have advised him to just just. Start introducing a little bit of hair dye. Yes. Because I am now fully grey and uh, you can't go back from fully grey, can you? Are you sure? Imagine if you turned up to do the podcast next week and I'm back to my former chestnut self. It, it wouldn't work, would it? I mean, I think gradually it's obviously easier to pull off. Yes. Okay, well, this is not cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've got something for you. Yes. Um, I'm going to send it to you now. It's a a little edited highlights package of episode one from six years ago. Oh, my God. Do you really have nothing better to do than sit in my loft? I kind of checked out all the options and uh, this I'm afraid this was the best on offer. (laughs) There's no regular going to the toilet time in Parliament. Actually, that is one of the few things there isn't. So it's not like school. You don't get just letting you know. You don't have to put your hand up and ask the speaker whether you can go to the toilet. Have you ever had that during PMQs though? David Cameron used to say, well, I always do it on a full bladder. Yes, I remember reading that. Oh, I know, but I thought that was just public school bollocks, really, wasn't it? I mean, you know. (laughs) The reason I'm excited seriously about this is I think there are lots of good ideas out there. Hopefully this will become the place where people hear some of those ideas, but hopefully not in a completely nerdy way, you know. Nobody could ever accuse either of us of being nerds. Certainly not me. Certainly not me. I baked cheesecake for my wife this weekend because it was her birthday. And my son, my six-year-old son, helped me make it. He did, did the base. Actually, he did a better base than I did. Did actually. he really help or was he hindering you a little? No, no, he did, a, he did well on the base. Well, he um, appealed to the base. <laughs> I shouldn't be giving you credit for that. No, but, it's just yeah. like a terrible pun. Yeah. So I started going running, you know, went running every day beginning of this week. And as I was sort of glorying in this achievement yesterday on my way home, thinking I'll tell my wife two and a half miles today, suddenly I was on the floor. What? I had 
fallen over. What? Yeah, I oh, tripped, you I tripped over a paving stone. Oh. But you know what was the strange thing? Is a woman was passing by. This is what you get for sort of being in the public eye sometimes. And she, instead of saying to me, are you okay? Which is what my son said to me when I walked to the door. She said, good job I didn't get that on camera, isn't it? <laughs> do, do you identify with a Muppet character? I don't really know the Muppets well enough to identify with them. Oh, fuck off, Beaker. <laughs> so nostalgic i know listening to that we haven't aged a bit i know it's it's six i mean it's a good job i didn't say my cooking is the thing that's most surprising about 2017 because i was (laughs) wanging on about my cooking even in 2017 i was also wanging on about my exercise so i know i know it's funny because i remembered the falling over episode and i kind of remembered now that you i am reminded of it making the cheesecake i didn't realize they all happened in episode one (laughs) A lot of big life events in episode one. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. Gosh. Memory lane. Well, for our sixth anniversary, we have something a bit different for you. But sadly, you weren't able to join us. And I, I, I blame Rishi Sunak. I know. I was dealing with his net zero nonsense. So we had to lose Ed at the last minute, but it is still a fantastic conversation despite that. It would have been better with you on it, of course. But it's a conversation with Grace Dent, columnist, broadcaster, author. She has a new book, which is a spin-off of her podcast, Comfort Eating, which is a, a great podcast. It's, it's really about the role that food plays in our lives, but it's also really insightful hearing what other people, she has some fantastic guests on it, you know, what they eat and what foods they associate with childhood. And the book is a great memoir of Grace's life as well. I was really looking forward to doing this, actually. Am I allowed to ask what your comfort food is? And then we can, I can say what mine is. I was trying to work out whether mine really is a comfort food. Yes, well, funnily enough, Grace and I didn't talk about mine, but when I was younger, and I've not had this for a long time, but interestingly, she said that this ingredient is a real staple in a lot of people's comfort food. I used to like getting Heinz tomato soup, this is really revolting, and then getting sliced white bread, ripping it up into dumplings, scrunching it into balls, throwing them into the soup and then grating cheese on top of that and then nuking it in a microwave for about four minutes. And and I'd end up with some version of liquidized pizza. That's amazing. But for a long time, I think that was my comfort food. Now, what is your definition of a comfort food? I think it's got to go deep. It's got to go back to childhood, right? There's some kind of emotional component to it as well, do you think? I think there's also something that if you ate lots and lots of this, it would be very, very unhealthy. I mean, it can't yes. It can't be sort of a carrot, can it really? <laughs> no, no. So what is yours then? Well, I was going to say, but I didn't know whether this qualified, the plain old cheese toasty. Ah. Oh. But as I was thinking about this episode, I was thinking, what's remarkable is that the sandwich toast that I had as a child in the 1980s is almost identical to the sandwich toaster in, in basically in most respects that I bought two or three years ago. I mean, basically, they cracked it with the sandwich toaster, didn't they, in the 70s and 80s? It's a classic design. There's something about the ceiling of the sandwich which I find very satisfying. Yes, I agree. And the perforations. Yeah, the perforations. What's your cheese of choice? Mm, it's grated cheddar. Right. I don't think it was grated. Well, maybe it was grated when I was a kid. I don't think it, you'd buy it grated. That seems like the height of decadence, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Well, anyway, I'm sorry I missed it with Grace. 
Well, we were uh, we we were sorry to miss you, but it is a good conversation. I hope people enjoy it. Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, it's very odd. I didn't really intend it this way, but my reason to be cheerful relates sort of precisely. I mean, maybe it's just entirely predictable to uh, the the theme we were just talking about. I went to the co-op conference, co-op party conference on Saturday. The very nice man, Joe Fortune, who runs the co-op party, had gone out and bought some refreshments. And one of them was, drumroll, wait for it, two packets of wagon wheels. (laughs) Now, for those listeners under the age of 50, they'll wonder what this is, (laughs) as my children did. I mean, you can't beat a nice wagon wheel, can you? Do you know, I was never a fan. There's something about the marshmallow that I never really enjoyed in a wagon wheel. I'm stunned. I feel that something just died inside of you after six years when I said that. It's like you can, you'll never quite look at me in the same way again. It sort of did, really. Anyway, I decided not to eat the wagon wheel before the doing the bit with the co-op. But then I decided I'd take a wagon wheel, quote unquote, scare quotes, home for my kids. <laughs> I offered my kids the wagon wheel. One of them rejected it out of hand. <laughs> One of them tasted it and rejected it out of hand. So I got to eat the wagon wheel. <laughs> so it was a double reason to be cheerful. Not only did I get a wagon wheel, which are, by the, by the way, a little bit upgraded, I feel, from the 1980s, unlike the toasted cheese sandwich, but I got to eat it. So you, I just want to check here. You, you checked the expiry date. This wasn't a wagon wheel from 1981. No. That's not why your kids didn't like it. No, in fact, I felt it, it was substantial. It was sort of, it seemed more... Seemed different, a little bit different. I think it had a bit of jam inside it as well. Well, jam. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so there you go. Congratulations. I can't believe you don't like wagon wheels. Did you not used to go swimming and then after after going swimming you have like a wagon wheel? No, I'll tell you what we used to get after swimming was a horrible cup of soup out of the vending machine. You know, and the powder all congealed in the bottom. Not good. By the way, no. I do, you must remind me because there's some new vending machines in the House of Commons which we'll come back to in a future episode because they'll <laughs> excite you. Someone's obviously been listening to the podcast. Uh, there's a little tease for, there's a little yeah, tease a little for you tease. to keep you listening. <laughs> exactly. Still fresh after all these years. Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful? Um, I, I wanted to say Reasons Revisited is my reason to be Aww. cheerful. A mini episode which is coming out on Fridays Aww. because we've got six years worth of incredible conversations with people who have thought a lot about the problems in society and, and there are very good ideas out there, which was the idea of this podcast in the first place. And it's really been enjoyable to both revisit those ideas um, but also the reaction to it um, people seem to really like it we keep it short for you because we know you're busy and you've got other podcasts to listen to even though we don't like to think about that we're in denial we definitely don't like to think about that we know that there's more competition for your ears than ever and um, thanks to everybody who has sent in a nice message about reasons revisited is that a hint to me that i've got sending a nice message <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, it'd be remiss of me not to start by asking you what you had for breakfast this morning. I had berries, raspberries and blueberries with a handful of oats and some other kind of seeds and a little bit of yoghurt. I know it's so boring, but if you saw my schedule of eating from now until Christmas you know that I have to just claw back health whenever I can. So I don't want to disappoint you. I didn't have foie gras. (laughs) 
I just find it's endlessly fascinating. I know in, in some ways this was the germ of the podcast as well, but to, to me there are fewer uh, things more interesting than just hearing somebody list what they've had to eat. <laughs> I mean, that was the whole premise of when I began my podcast and ended up writing the book around comfort eating, is that when a celebrity tells you about the restaurants that they go to, I think most people immediately turn off because it's suddenly it's a barrier to this magical £400 a meal world. However, when they talk about what they had for breakfast, that's fascinating every single time. When the audio engineer or in any radio show or any podcast says, you know, just for a bit of level, tell me what you had for breakfast. And then suddenly this celebrity says three cream eggs. You're like, well, that's hang on a minute. That's that's the only question I have now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I want you to tell me why cream eggs and why did you eat so many and who bought them and were they in the fridge? Because that little gem just it gets right to the heart of what a person is. It does, but it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because we've gone from that situation where either the person you're interviewing or the PRs would get antsy if you spent too long on that stuff to doing a podcast like yours where you you can just have free reign to talk about that and then see where it takes you. Yeah, absolutely. I've been working in media since the 90s. I think they're going to start putting up blue plaques soon for places. <laughs> That I, that I worked. Grace Dent once worked in this fashion cupboard at Marie Claire, whatever. However, I hated, I legendarily hated interviewing celebrities through the 90s, through the noughties. I hid every time I heard the editor come up with a celebrity and thought I was a good fit. Because of that, the, the, the neatly controlled answers that these people are going to give you. I always say it's a bit like trying to interview a toddler about what they did at play school. Yes. It's like interviewing a child about school. The only two facts they're going to give you is A and B, and they will not divert. <laughs> they're not going to tell you anything else. With celebrities, if you went straight in and said, so anyway, uh, how was the schoolyard? <laughs> What was the schoolyard like for you? What was, the, what was the school bully like? They would immediately walk out the interview doing that dramatic thing where they take their microphone off as they go, but it's still yeah. attached a little bit, which I always love. Yeah. But if you sit them down and you talk about toast, it's it's amazing what comes out. So that, that is how I ended up being kind of lured in to do comfort eating and then how the book came from it. How often when you talk to guests about their comfort eating and they've got these concoctions that have usually been invented in childhood. How often do you then go away and try them? Oh, absolutely all the time because they, um, they're they in front of me. We make it. If somebody wants beans on toast with with a crunched up what's-its on top of it as their snack, we make it. Uh, that was Scarlett Moffat, by the way. From Gogglebox, and she's gone on to be very, very, yes. very famous, yeah. So these things are in front of me. And what I find is I, you do recoil. You recoil when somebody suddenly gets this, there's a lot of, we get a lot of Heinz tomato soup. Somebody slung Nena Cherry, Heinz tomato soup with peanut butter in it. Or Stephen Fry, some mashed skippers 
still with their spines in, really, really mashed up with a fork, just with little baby tomatoes mashed all over bread. When these things are in front of you, what I love is stripped of their context and stripped of their the, the, the childhood relevance that the person is bringing. They are disgusting and they make me hurl the thought of it. And then I have a fork and you go, OK, actually, <laughs> actually, that does work. Yeah, you can get a canister of old smash, you know, smash for yeah, smash, yeah, yeah, with the robots, smash. Yeah. Uh, you can get that. And if you just put a load of butter and a load of mayonnaise in it, it is actually, like I'm going to say it, it's delicious. The thing is that when they leave, we end up with all those ingredients. So I, I do, I find myself so many times sitting eating it. When I'm going up to my podcast, I very often don't eat because I'm quite anxious. So what I find is that the person goes and I'm just left with this enormous vat of pasta with Tabasco and Philadelphia rather unattractively just <laughs> feeding it into <laughs> going, this is absolutely delicious. And have any of those entered your repertoire at home? Well, before I stopped drinking, I had Siobhan McSweeney round and she brought a can of Guinness, a bar of dairy milk and a bag of tato crisps. And I'd never eaten tato crisps. These are the Irish crisps. I'd never eaten tato crisps. They are absolutely Delicious cheese and onion. What she wanted me to do was put it all in my mouth at the same time. So you put the, the crisps in and the Guinness and the chocolate, swell it all around. And she said, and that is the taste of going to the pub with my dad when I was a little girl and him letting me have a bar of chocolate and the froth off his Guinness. Oh, so lovely. Yeah, yeah. And after she left, that was definitely in my repertoire for a while. But no, it was it's absolutely delicious. My downfall is the stuff that the guests leave behind. You got Tupperware? Oh, God, of course, of course. I'm in my 40s. Of course I've got Tupperware. I don't take E anymore, but I've got some amazing pop and lock. <laughs> Have you ever had guests scoop stuff into a box and take it with them? No, isn't that funny? No one's asked me that before. No, no. What they tend to do is they leave sheepishly and want to forget that they've admitted what what's happened what i love is that you see the absolute the most where jamie demetrio you know stathlet's flats mm. i love him and he came over the other day and he did that classic thing where they come in and they're also kind of swaggering and cool and media trained he's just come off the set of barbie he's and then he sits down and until that very moment when he has to unveil the snack i don't want to tell you what it is but it was pretty disgusting it involved banana that had congealed to the fact where it had literally gone brown anyway he did that thing that they start backtracking before they instead of just going look here's my here's my snack and i'm really proud of it they start backtracking going oh it's not i just want to say first that it's like you know someone like krishnan guru murthy this incredibly confident man totally blushing because he's just got a tin of rice pudding <laughs> He's just eating it from the tin. It's so vulnerable. So vulnerable. I'm like, so when do you eat that? And he's like, um, well, when I get in from work. And I'm like, well, so does nobody cook for you? And he's like, no, nobody's really that bothered. And I say, well, if they watched what you were on, no. Does anyone even know you've been at work? <laughs> he started 
<laughs> talking this, yeah, very vulnerably about the actual realities of being, you know, at the helm of news, everybody watching you. But at the end of the day, the camera stops and you come home and have your rice pudding. It's interesting as well, because listening to you talk about some of the different concoctions, what I'm not getting is like this big class disparity Mm. either, because Mm. I guess in that world that you work in with the restaurant criticism, especially at the end of it, where you talk about Michelin-starred restaurants where people can drop a £1,000 on a meal for two, you feel that sort of food occupies a different role at different ends of the social spectrum. Mm. But there's, there's something about talking about this stuff that people get up to in private, that's a great level in a way. I mean, I'm fascinated by class, always have been. I say that the class differences between me and the people that surround me, instead of reducing, they just manifest themselves in different ways as I, as I get older. However, although I do completely believe that all these class differences exist, I do feel very conscious sometimes when I go... As a working class person, we love this. As a working class person, we love that because people who are upper class turn around to me and say, Grace, my mother used to literally stop at the SO garage and shove some frozen fish fingers into the... And, and we ate atrociously. We So I do know that that crosses, that crosses the class divide very, very posh people still know their way around a Frey Bentos pie. <laughs> I keep waiting. Every couple of years, there's a news story that they're going to bring out a vegetarian Frey Bentos and I get really excited and then it just goes away again. I wonder about my own relationship with comfort eating because I, I want to just listen to my body. So, yeah, I think in, in this world, we would all love to instinctively eat. There's this idea that you just listen, just listen to your body. <laughs> Just listen to your body and just eat what it wants. Yeah, I would have six pieces of Warburton's white toasty <laughs> loaf with with inch thick butter and and raspberry jam every morning, which would take me up to my pret-a-manger massive, you know, croissant <laughs> with a burst of muesli on the side because I thought it was healthy. Uh, yeah, isn't it awful though? That, so many delicious things out there, but for most of us, we have to live in a state of of, of denial. Because I think the idea of comfort eating is is possibly at odds with my underlying emotional issues, and that's what I need to to keep an eye on. Did you did hang on a minute? Hang on a minute. We're not just dancing over that. Yes. So so I'm sober. So I'm sober. You're, I'm sober. I know. I know this. I know this, and I I feel that part of my sobriety and and the. However, I've got that framed in my head as deprivation means to me that every meal has to be a treat in some way. And that isn't a good way to eat. Oh, so I love talking to other people that are sober, Jeff. Let's just pretend there's no one else here. So, yeah, you did you do the thing where you give up the drink and then you start to feel a little bit lighter and, and happier. So then you think, well, I deserve this Twix. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly that. Everybody else is having these delicious cocktails and then the wine and then the, the, the digestif at the end. And you think, well, then I'm going to have sticky toffee pudding yes. and I'm also going to have the cheese plate. Yes, and then, then the extension of that is 
you're 20-odd years in and it's a Tuesday night and you're thinking, well, I don't get to have a glass of wine, so I'm going to have a feast yes. delivered to my house. Have you been sober 20 years? Uh, 20, uh, 22, I think, at this point, yeah. <sighs> Absolute newbie compared to you, that's like two years. But, wow, I love speaking to people that have done 20 years. But that's fascinating, that the comfort eating and the excuses and bargaining we do inside our head when giving up drink never goes away. I honestly thought I loved the taste and I realised that I think I was drinking all of my life to quell anxiety. <laughs> like not a not not massive debilitating anxiety, but a slight, very British ripple of anxiety that accompanies every time we have to leave the house. Why did I agree to go to this nightclub on Saturday night? Why did I agree to go to this neighbourhood watch meeting? And Britain just oils this kind of anxiety that we have about not being very sociable people. I know. I, I don't think your drinking was kind of at the stage that mine got to where you'd wake up in the morning and, and to be able to face people, you needed to have a drink. But what's surprising to me is you just seem a much... A, different level of social competence to what I am you, you just do you know so it's it's interesting that like social anxiety is a, an aspect of that for you I think that from being a child I was always a, a child that didn't seem to enjoy children's life like other children did my mother said you know when Christmas was coming, I just didn't seem to display the requisite amount of joy over Christmas or birthdays. I would just worry who was coming to the birthday party, who would show up. I was speaking to uh, John Ronson the other day, and I think he had a very, very similar childhood. I think there was a lot of us that spent our childhood sitting on a chair waiting to go. <laughs> <laughs> Just going, oh, my God, this is all just a bit too much. I think that probably about 75% of the country would like to live without alcohol. And they think they're waiting for that rock bottom before they can make the step. I think that you just need to, you know, it sounds easy said, and don't just bloody stop. Yeah, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any hierarchy of alcoholism. By the way, I'm, I'm mm. just sort of comparing mm. how I imagine it's different. No, for you. no, I agree. I absolutely agree. There isn't. Uh, I am always interested in in that though. The kind of imaginary hierarchy of alcoholism that stops us all getting to grips with what we should probably do. Mm. Have you encountered like defensiveness from people? Over it. Yeah. Mm, it's, that's a, it's a funny trait, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, people, yeah, in so many different ways. Well, you never talk about it without people immediately listing all the drinks that they drink. Yeah. Or they, they start wanting to know exactly how bad you were. Yes. I think one of the reasons I got sober was when my parents were both dying and then they died, I was so struck by the length of time that I had left. And I realised that pissing about, I, I mean, I, I just can't even remember my 30s. No, I know. And that was 10 years. And I thought, OK, and I don't, I've got like a handful of memories of my 40s. I know I had a good time, but I really, I want to make every day count from now on. And if you're losing five hours of the day, just, you know, full of anxiety, 
it's it's a waste of time. Got too much to do. On that defensiveness, I never sort of know where you're up to with um, veganism and vegetarianism because mm. I think because of your job, mm. you, you can't go sort of all in with both feet, but it's something you you have spent a lot of time writing about and doing. Yeah. Do you encounter that same defensiveness over that? Yeah, I mean, people rarely... In restaurants and things like that, people rarely mention it because people people don't talk to me that much in restaurants anyway because when I arrive, it's like Darth Vader's arrived. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. They're just bowing and scraping to you and, and trembling. There can't be a word out of place. Are people defensive? Look, the reasons that I try to limit the amount of things that involve cruelty that I put into my body is is absolutely ethical. I love animals I would be far, far happier, which I shouted yesterday really loudly in my living room, if I was just working at Celia Hammond in Cannon Town, <laughs> rehoming cats. That is my future. I want to open some kind of animal sanctuary. I've got a name for it. It's called the Wonky Donkey. Fantastic. And it's just, it's just llamas with sore knees and things like that. <laughs> I would be so much happier. So when I, I mean, all my life on and off, I have whatever vegetarian and vegan stuff's coming through, I try to embrace it and learn how to cook with it and try to support it, try to write about it. I'm very, very proud of the fact that when I have mentioned it, it means that so many restaurants, when they see me coming in, you know, they are scared that I won't find something on there for vegans and for vegetarians. People have been absolutely furious at me for talking about it yeah. in the food world. They've been furious because I think it goes absolutely against everything that we know about restaurant critics for the last 40 years. There's, there's an image of the restaurant critic that we never come across well when we're represented in film or in TV. We're always dickheads every time. I mean, there are a lot of dickheads in that job. Yeah, I mean, it attracts a certain type of person. And there's some great writers in that job as well. Yeah, the idea that in the past that a restaurant critic wouldn't have been delighted by the glorious 12th when lots and lots and lots and lots of birds are shot dead grouse season oh and, and the game season and so for me to come along and go I really like tofu <laughs> really was I did experience a hell of a lot of people being angry and then also they then want a hundred percent evidence of your saintliness oh yeah 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 so the moment that you go I love vegan food. I love vegetarian food. They'll go, well, I think you'll find that on MasterChef in, you were eating haunch venison. Well, that's what everybody's going to cook on MasterChef. Yeah. Sometimes they come through and they cook vegan and vegetarian and it's absolutely bloody amazing. Uh, but often they stick to the safe option on MasterChef. Not, well, nothing safe on MasterChef. It's bloody terrifying for them. But I do get a lot of haunch venison. Yeah, it's it's weird. There can be this real hostility where there's some way in which meat and identity are wrapped up with each other. Perhaps, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't like sort of gender stereotype, but, but perhaps more commonly in men as well, I think. Yeah. 
No, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. I bought a barbecue recently to, to grill some halloumi in the in the back garden, and I, I made the mistake of falling down a YouTube barbecue hole, and that's that's where. I mean, never mind your Andrew Tate's and your Joe Rogans. It's that's where it's <laughs> happening on barbecue YouTube. Yeah. I, I suppose I, another reason I'm interested in it is something that comes up time and time again in comfort eating in in both the book and the the podcast is just. How how much of the food you get comfort from is is mm. grounded in those early memories of your of your palate mm. being formed, and I think we're from quite similar backgrounds. And and even now, when I go home, my, my aunties don't know what to do with my vegetarianism. It's like the it's like the <laughs> wafer thin ham in the royal family, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, will he have fish? Yeah, yeah. Will will he have yeah? Will he have chicken breast? I say, oh, I'll have a cheese sandwich, and and oh right, yeah, cheese sandwich. It, like that wouldn't occur to them. My partner is uh, Jewish and doesn't eat pork, and I think that was one of the. I mean, the the thought that he was Jewish from a different faith did not phase my family, even though we had met absolutely no Jewish people in Carlisle growing up. But they were very, wow, this guy's come with a different faith. Until he didn't eat pork. They had literally no idea what to serve him. They were just sitting there going, well, will you have a sausage roll? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, a ham, ham sandwich. What? What? what we... So we won't have bacon. On... <laughs> I just loved that. It was just so lovely to watch this idea that the the idea of God and all those things, they were fine, they could cope with, but the idea that he wouldn't have, you yeah. know, he wouldn't have a sausage <laughs> on a stick was like, what will we serve on Christmas afternoon if we can't have ham sandwiches? <laughs> the idea that we we weren't going to be able to have that, you know, that Nigella Lawson ham um, baked in cola. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. It's one of her famous ones, isn't it? Yeah. It just looks absolutely vile when it... When you actually get it out of the foil, it resembles something that archaeologists have dug up underneath, you know, pilt down man. It's just all kind of skin flailing. So, yeah, we're not, we don't do that at Christmas anymore because of the Old Testament. When you'd moved to London, did your mum ever get um, food in to suit your new cosmopolitan life? Like my mum would. Oh. I think she once saw me eat a kiwi fruit, and then th- there wasn't a time I don't think in the you know s- subsequent thirty years of her life where she didn't buy kiwi fruit for me when I went to visit. And I don't think I I ever ate ate one, or maybe I'd occasionally force one down. I love that. I love that just swimming in kiwi fruits, yeah. which were just her northern way of showing love. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. Northerners, we, I mean, especially in the 80s and 90s, if your mother actually said that she loved you or like it meant she was terminally ill or something, because oh, yeah. if anybody... Yeah, the, the, only, the only time to this day my dad has ever said those words is I, I had a suspected brain tumour in 2004 mm. and, and he said that to me and that did not fall comfortably out of his mouth at all. Oh. But you know, I mean, you know, don't you? Yes, yeah. yes. So did my mother buying special fancy London food. Absolutely not. Right. And in exactly the same way, though, she showed her love through food and excess. I, I've written about this a lot, the idea that my mother grew up in, in the through, through the Second World War and into rationing, where they grew up with scarcity and making do and 
powdered egg and pooling tokens to make a wedding cake and all that. And then when, by the time everything started to rectify, late 50s, 60s, it all starts to flood through again. My mother took to shopping for food to to, to be happy. Mm. The happiness, and I always pinpoint the the mid-80s when the big supermarkets, big Asda's, big Morrison's, started showing up on the sides of cities all over the north, I'm sure in the south too. And that age group, the one befores rather, they took to these big supermarkets and they went and they piled high with the things that they wanted, white rolls, 24 white rolls for one pound, uh, reduced coleslaw, you 500 grams of it for 22p. <laughs> A donut, suddenly you could get a pack of 12 reduced donuts. They're doing you a favour. No, they, they just ordered too many donuts, <laughs> Mum. She certainly didn't ever go out and say, I must, I must buy Grace some baba ganoush because she works in media now. But when I did get home, and it's one of the things I missed so much about the past is, because all of it's gone now, it's all gone. Every, all of it, the house isn't there, the fridge isn't mm. there, my family are dead. They're all, it's all gone. But to be able to walk up the back lane in Curragh in Carlisle to the old family home and let myself in the back door and open that fridge full to the brim with those yellow whoops as the stickers. <laughs> you know, the Jenga that your mother would have in the fridge where she's just like, there's some pate needs eaten. It was reduced. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I just don't, I don't think I want fizzy pate now. <laughs> I grew up amongst Christianity and Church of England, but I don't think it, we didn't talk about it very much. But with at Christmas, it was just there. It was Church of England school, blah, blah, blah. But at Christmas, our religion was shopping for food. Oh, yeah. You will never match the exhilaration of being in Marks and Spencer's car park on Christmas Eve first to get fancy coleslaw for the Boxing Day yeah. buffet. You wouldn't go any other time of the year. Yeah. But you would go and get these fancy th- fancy picky bits from Marks and Spencer's. That was our religion. Just seeing things that had just come, like matchmakers, you would never see them. Yes. Uh, or the, the sort of crystallised jellied oranges. You'd, you'd never see them. And then it just feel like, oh, Christmas is, is the best because we've got all this crap in our house. And I, th- I say that there is literally a trolley with certain items that you put in that just create Christmas. In the absence of God and Jesus and any of us mm. really knowing what we believe in, we believe in birds trifle in the box. <laughs> We believe in the in in the holiness of the mint matchmaker and the jar of the tin of quality. It's not even a tin. The plastic box of Quality Street. I really think that more should have been made socially of the fact that they took all the wrappers off the Quality Street and just put them in these little packets recently, so they're all the same size and shape because these things were so important to us. Yes, people won't go out and vote for an actual government. But if we'd had a referendum about Quality Street, <laughs> people would people have very passionate views on because it takes us ricochets as this festive whiplash back to nineteen eighty five. 
Mm. This is the whole point of what I do. It's uh, these trickles back into our psyche that we probably wouldn't admit. And we can kind of look at other European countries and think, oh, well, you know, our our culture doesn't revolve around food in the same way. But it it does. But Mm. I think we just need to kind of accept it's uh, a lot of things that you'd find on the shelf of a supermarket and a lot of things that could be heated for 25 minutes at gas mark six. At the same time, why not? Because... Our food writing and our food culture, our TV shows, we have some of the greatest TV shows around food in the world and people love them, but they only represent a certain type of eating. There is joy and there is worth in, the, in, in as you say, going into a supermarket before Christmas and getting a load of stuff and everything takes 200 degrees for 12 minutes. Isn't it interesting as well? There was an article, I think, from from The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, which was all about ultra-processed foods. And it does feel like 90% of what we've talked about today would fail that test. Oh, completely. Yes, absolutely, because everything's in packets. So are we fucked then? (laughs) If we've got such a warm, nostalgic attachment Mm. to, to these foods. I think that the whole debate on processed foods... It isn't in contradiction to what I'm saying. It's beautifully beside it. It's exact. I think that I do more to examine why we are eating these things than a thousand reports bunged into the news. So they go, and these things are bad, but naughty people keep eating them because they're weak-willed fools when they could be (laughs) eating blueberries. I don't offer any answers other than you can't eat these foods all the time. We know this, though. We know this. You know this. I know this. You can't live on an entire diet of bird's trifle and Warburton's toasty with butter. It's, it's not good for you. We're, we're not stupid. We know we're meant to get a bit of fruit and veg down us. We, we all know that ordering a massive banquet to be delivered by somebody. It's not doing us any favours. I know, I know. So I think that the ultra-processed food debate, the only thing it does for me is I look down the list and I go, okay, I suppose I'll swap out these bagels for these bagels. And then I buy the other type of bagel or I try to be a bit educated by it. But there's a far bigger thing going on that I try to examine in what I do. It's always so great to talk to you, and and we we barely touched on. Uh, I mean, we we talked about memories, but the memoir aspect of the the book is um, wonderful as well, and as ever, the writing is fantastic. But thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, Grace. You're so welcome. I love talking to you, Jeff. I'm delightful, aren't I? <laughs> you just. You're just lovely. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho for the sick year. We are in the outro, ho, ho. We are ho, ho, ho. Now, you've been sneaking off to gigs without inviting me. Oh, yes. I think I maybe know what you're talking about. Yes. Rachel sent me a video. Yes. Of you bopping, I think is the right word, in the audience of um, Robert Peston and Ed Ball's band, The Centrist Dads. It was around the corner from my house in London, so... <laughs> Are you trying to suggest that you'd gone to complain about the noise? No, actually, to be honest, 
it's a York Ride Street Festival and I go every year. In fact, I open it a lot, uh, most years. And I have to say, I thought Ed Pulse and Robert Peston were brilliant. I mean, genuinely, they were really good. Does any part of you feel slighted because you weren't asked to join the band? Oh my God, definitely not. <laughs> I mean, I can't really sing, can I? Well, anyone who watched that video of you doing blowing in the wind um, oh, would I mean, agree with that. Well, yeah. maybe, maybe I should like play the violin by the Suzuki method <laughs> with them. I mean, that is what they're missing, isn't it? Yeah. As you know, it's a sort of tragedy that I'm not really very musical. Well, maybe it's a hobby for later in life. What would you recommend? I'll tell you what instrument I can see you playing. Bassoon. Mm. No? I think you could be like Akabilk for the new millennium. The harp? <laughs> it's a lot of lugging it around, though, isn't it? You think I might drop the harp? Is that what you're saying to me? I, th- I think so. I don't... I mean, you towing a harp behind that bicycle of yours, I don't see it going well. You'd worry about the harp, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, can I just say, it's been a fantastic six years. It's been fun, hasn't it? I feel very, very lucky to be your partner in podcasting. The same. I feel the same. Shall we thank our guest? We should. Thank you to Grace Dent. Grace's podcast and her new book is called Comfort Eating, and it's out next week. The podcast is just out, but the book is out next week. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the items. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's still been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.